I had forgotten the, that your uh, parents came all the way from Thailand to serve George Washington. Um, say what, Senator? From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK. 90.7 FM, people-powered radio in L.A. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast to 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI News Radio. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM, the Green Renaissance Network. And in Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP, not to mention... AM 950 in Minneapolis, St. Paul, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the intertubes on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, Radio Sputnik, and other unnamed but fantastic affiliates. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Not that Planet Earth needs a blanket at this point. Uh, hello, Desi Doyen. How <laughs> hello. are you? Good one. Uh, thank you. I, I just wrote it. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, a lot of uh, coming up, uh, one of the most unreported stories of the election season. And, and frankly, that's saying quite a bit. Uh, there are so many underreported stories this election season. Uh, remember that whole discussion about dark, undisclosed money in politics in the wake of Citizens United? You know, that conversation that it seems like we stopped having entirely pretty much from the moment that Donald Trump descended down that escalator back on uh, June 16, 2015. Yeah, well, that's still a problem. Uh, whether we're talking about it or not, and in places where you might not even think about it uh, being a problem very often, that's coming up momentarily. But we do have, in the past 24 hours, a um, remarkable amount of breaking news. So we are uh, exercising our option to pick and choose what we're going to cover, I guess, today, what we have time to cover Frankly, and of course, this is our way of, uh, you know, suppressing, censoring all the news we don't want to talk about that we don't want you to hear about because, you know, that's what we do here in the media. Right. Well, sure. <laughs> so uh, in any event, uh, for, well, all right, let's start here from uh, and I've rewritten the lead to this show. I don't know how many times today with so many things breaking anyway from underreported to overreported. Let's go to uh, the news that has seems to have sucked the life out of cable news today as of this afternoon when the story broke. Word that the FBI is not even reopening. I, I'm not sure what the right word is. Uh, continuing, uh, taking additional steps 
in its uh, FBI uh, email probe of Hillary Clinton's private email server. Uh, so they're sort of reopening the investigation, sort of, um, but not really. Uh, and and given the amount of attention that this story has gotten today in ca- on the cable news. Oh, it's a cablegasm. Like, oh, a total cablegasm. Well said. <laughs> It is like this is this is it. This is the October surprise. It's the most important thing in the world. Yeah, uh, maybe, but not yet. Uh, you know, as soon as I heard it, I wasn't even sure. I was like, okay, why is that even worth covering at all today? Frankly, it'll be worth covering something if something is is revealed. But if you look at the actual letter, so James Comey sends this letter uh, to the uh, Select Committee on U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, And it's basically this three paragraphs. And here's the actual letter. Here's what he actually told the uh, the the Senate investigators. He said in uh, due to recent developments, I'm writing to supplement my previous testimony in connection with an unrelated case. The FBI has learned of the existence of emails that appear to be pertinent to this investigation. I am writing to inform you that the investigative team briefed me on this yesterday, and I agreed that the FBI should take appropriate investigative steps designed to allow investigators to review these emails to determine whether they contain classified information, as well as to assess their importance to our investigation. Although the email, uh, although the FBI cannot yet assess whether or not this material may be significant. And I cannot predict how long it will take to complete the additional work. I believe it's important to update your committees about our efforts in light of my previous testimony. So he's basically letting them know, hey, we found some additional emails in another case. And so we're going to look at them to make sure that there's no uh, classified information there like there wasn't in the tens of thousands of uh, emails that they had already looked at that the FBI director, James Comey, had reported to the U.S. Senate about. Now, he has not given an update. Uh, he gives an update on, on these cases. But as our friend David Dayen uh, noticed and asked, when is James Comey going to update us about what happened to all the criminal referrals of bankers to the FBI? Comey doesn't seem to keep us quite as up to date on those investigations as he does on this one. But OK, Um <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not even sure what to, to make of this. Like I said, I, additionally, I was like, OK, so what? Let me know when there is something of note to report on in this case. But the fact that they're just looking at these emails, maybe there'll be something explosive there. Now, they're reportedly these emails are reportedly uh, related to some investigation into Anthony Weiner's sexting issues. Um, and if there's something explosive, Fantastic. We will report it right now. It's like, OK, well, we'll look at these things and see if there's anything there. I don't know if I'm missing anything or not. Am I missing anything as you see it? Desi I, I'm not I be sure. Um, I can tell you that Sam Stein, who was following this very closely, the Sam Stein of the Huffington Post, he said, OK, so this is not about Clinton sent emails. These are not emails that Hillary Clinton sent. Uh, it's not about her server. They didn't come for her or mm-hmm. through her server that they were found on Anthony Weiner device. There may be only a few emails. And he said that, uh, you know, the FBI statement is almost, quote, almost irresponsible in its brevity. Well, what is more irresponsible, frankly, is the way this has been regarded by the news media. Until there is a story, why are you freaking everyone out with breaking news headlines and banners and you know going wall to wall on this? Uh, I don't get it. 
Very but weird. it wouldn't be the first time I didn't understand the uh, corporate mainstream media. Uh, so there's that. And uh, if anything does develop there, of course, we will report it. Uh, one thing I do want to report, just because there's some amazing audio here, and I want to make sure we get to this. Uh, Senator Mark Kirk of Illinois, he's in a, a tough reelection battle against Congresswoman Tammy Duckworth in, um, in Illinois. And uh, she is, if you don't know who Tammy Duckworth is, uh, she was born in Bangkok, Thailand. She's an Iraq War veteran. She's a Purple Heart recipient. She uh, she grew up in Southeast Asia before her family moved to Hawaii. In 2004, she lost both of her legs, both of her legs and partial use of one of her arms after the combat helicopter that she was flying in Iraq was hit by an, uh, an RPG. Uh, so... <laughs> She's a congresswoman. She's trying to unseat Mark Kirk, who is uh, the Republican incumbent, uh, and he's in big trouble in Illinois. Uh, I would say after what happened last night at this debate between the two of them that he is done. He is cooked. He is through. During the debate, Duckworth was talking about her military service which I don't think anyone questions, as well as uh, the long history of military service in her own family. She said, as she has many times on the campaign trail, that her family has served this nation in uniform going back to the revolution. Now, here is her comment and Mark Kirk's response to that comment. And we're going to leave in all the pauses here just so you can see how well his response went over in the room. My family has served this nation in uniform, going back to the revolution. I'm a daughter of the American Revolution. I've bled for this nation. But I still want to be there in the Senate when the drums of war sound, because people are quick to sound the drums of war. And I want to be there to say, this is what it costs. This is what you're asking us to do. And if that's the case, I'll go. Families like mine are the ones that bleed first. But let's make sure the American people understand what we are engaging in. And let's hold our allies accountable, because we can't do it all. Senator Kirk, 30 seconds to rebut. I had forgotten uh, that your uh, parents came all the way from Thailand to serve George Washington. Move on to the next question. This is Bernie <laughs> okay. Schoenberg. Now all right, hold on for a second. So, so Duckworth says her family uh, served all the way back to the Revolution, and he says, I forgot your parents came all the way from Thailand to serve George Washington. That went over well in the room like a lead balloon. It, it, it kind of sounded like this in truth. I had forgotten the, that your uh, parents came all the way from Thailand to serve George Washington. That was the sound of the lead balloon exploding in that room. Boy, did he bomb on that one. Her father, uh, Tammy Duckworth's father, uh, her, her si father's side of the family, uh, has a long history of serving the U.S. going all the way back to the Revolutionary War. But I guess because she was born in Thailand, she's not uh, uh, <laughs> welcome to that privilege uh, as uh, as Mark Senator. U.S. Senator Mark Kirk sees it. Here, here's what happened uh, after his response. Move on to the next question. This is Bernie Schoenberg. Now your chance. We'll start with Congresswoman Duckworth first to respond. And you're welcome to take some time if you want to respond to that, too. <laughs> sure. Uh, there's been uh, members of my family serving in uniform uh, on my father's side going back to the revolution. I belong to the William J. Penny chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution uh, right here. And if you go to Mount Vernon, Illinois, you'll see a statue of me put up by the Daughters of the American Revolution next to one of our great, great patriots, Molly Pitcher, one of the first women to pick up 
uh, uh, her, her husband's and then take her husband's position during the revolution. Um, I'm proud of both my father's side and my mother who's an immigrant. She became an American citizen in her 50s. And I'm let, just let, as let me proud get in one that. last question. So Mark Kirk is done. He should be. He should be toast after that comment. Uh, now, mind you, Mark Kirk had unendorsed Donald Trump, uh, calling him, quote, too bigoted and too racist to be president. <laughs> Oh, man. So, uh, hey, Mark, uh, the call is coming from inside your own house. Uh, and it reminded me of, uh, remember Scott Brown, uh, Senator Scott Brown and his contest against uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren? Up in, Massachusetts. in Massachusetts. Oh, yeah, yes, I do. Yeah, when he snarked on her. You remember it, I know, specifically when he snarked on her Cherokee background. Uh, because I guess because she's blonde and she's not very Indian-y looking. Right. As uh, uh, Scott Brown saw it. Now, Desi Doyen, I always got to point back to you on this because uh, you're kind of blonde and not very Indian-y looking. No. Nope. And yet you're great. What is it? Great, great. My fifth great grandfather was a big Cherokee. A big Cherokee. Yeah, a big Cherokee. Yes, he was a in big history. Cherokee. He's very instrumental in history, and it's a long story. But yes, and so it is possible to have, you know, provable ancestry, and hers is difficult to prove because there are not a whole lot of written records, um, but there are some potential, you know, but that's that doesn't matter because essentially they're saying, they're, uh, you know, Trump likes well, to call her Pocahontas, for example. Uh, Trump calls, yeah, calls Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas. Which is, you know, right. the wrong tribe to start with, but also extremely racially offensive. And going back to uh, uh, to Duckworth here, uh, she's a daughter of the American Revolution. They don't let people into that organization, right, unless they check Can their... Can prove it. Yeah, unless you they You have to have the documents. Right. Because your family, you're kind of uh, from uh, daughters of the We're uh, also Texas. daughters of the American Revolution right. and also daughters of the Texas Republic. So uh, you know how that uh, paperwork goes. They it's check that stuff out, right? Oh, yeah. So uh, unbelievable. I forgot your parents came all the way from Thailand to serve George Washington. Deeply offensive. Unbelievable. Uh, he has since repo- uh, apologized, Mark Kirk has, but it took until today. He put to, uh, on Twitter this morning, sincere apologies to an American hero, Tammy Duckworth and gratitude for her family's service. He might as well have added, congratulations on your election to the U.S. Senate. (laughs) Uh, Okay, just wanted to make sure to get that in because that was just shocking to me. Um, Some uh, interesting news about uh, money in the uh, presidential race in these uh, last remaining days as we are just a little bit more than a week away from Election Day. Um, as NBC report, uh, NBC News reports, not only is the GOP lagging when it comes to early voting operations, but Donald Trump has now a serious cash problem, they say. The Republican presidential candidate has just $16 million on hand and is $2 million in debt. That according to filings with the uh, Federal Elections Commission through uh, mid-October. Um, the outlook which will be the last FEC filing before Election Day, looks a bit better for Trump when the totality of his two other fundraising committees are included. That gives him $67 million for the final days. And I love how NBC News say that uh, he's in he's serious cash problems. The dude has $67 million to spend in the next week. But that apparently is a problem, at least compared to uh, the Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton, who's in a much better position. Her campaign and two fundraising committees have more than twice what Donald Trump has. She has $153 million in the bank, and she has just $111,000 in debt. So compare that to Donald Trump, $2 million in debt. 
after his campaign has been, you know, complaining about uh, the, the we know the government uh, is in debt. We can't continue running up these debts. Well, he's run up two million dollars in debt. Clinton has only run up one hundred and eleven thousand. And uh, more of note here, it turns out uh, he's a liar. You may have heard. I don't know. Uh, Donald Trump is a liar. He had pledged uh, as recently as this week to donate one hundred million dollars to his effort. He gave uh, uh, just thirty thousand dollars this month in the last month before the election. Thirty thousand dollars. He's pledged one hundred million. He's given about fifty six million. That's a lot of money, I guess. Um, to his campaign. Most of that was during the primary election when he was self-funding, but uh, he's only got a few days left to give $44 million if he follows through on his pledge to give $100 million to his campaign. Now, mind you, they say that's a, you know, $56 million, which is what he's given so far, is a lot of money. I guess it is, but he claims to be uh, a billionaire. He claims to have to be worth $10 billion. And I did some math here. Um, if a guy who is worth $10 billion gives $56 million, it was hard doing this. I'm not good at math, and my calculator actually doesn't go up to $10 billion. Um, but uh, put it in this, if I got this right, I think I did. Uh, let's say I have a net worth, I'm a normal person-ish, and I've got a net worth of $100,000 to run for school board or something, right? But my net worth is $100,000. I'm going to run for a small, you know, election somewhere for dog catcher. That would be the equivalent of me putting in $560 to my campaign. That's all. Uh, that's how much uh, Donald Trump has put into his campaign if he's telling the truth about being worth $10 billion. I'll leave it to you if you want to believe that. Uh, but he put in a mere $31,000 in the first 19 uh, days of October, which is, you know, kind of amazing um, and also underscores that, uh, as I said, he may be a liar. And by the way, uh, so he's put it since since the GOP primary, uh, he's put in two million dollars each month into the campaign. That would be the equivalent of that guy who's worth one hundred thousand dollars putting in twenty dollars a month to his own campaign. That's how much he's uh Forking out, and a lot of it is coming back in because he's charging rent to the campaign. Uh, so a lot of money has gone to rent at Trump Tower and uh, catering from his own restaurants, and he's even billing the campaign for Trump ice bottled water that's been showing up at his events. Nonetheless, uh, with the obscene amount of money, and it is an obscene amount of money, particularly dark money that has come in from undisclosed sources uh, in U.S. elections this year that we're not talking about at all, particularly following the 2010 Citizens United ruling at the Supreme Court, uh, all of th that dark money coming in has been somewhat obscured by the emergence of this supposed billionaire uh, and this wildly dishonest, unqualified one at that running for president. But concerns about dark, undisclosed money in American elections have not gone away, not only at the presidential level, but also at the congressional, the senatorial and even the state and local level. Uh, that continues, or at least it should. It has not received the type of attention it deserves, particularly from the corporate media, which I need to remind you is the beneficiary of a great majority of all of this campaign spending that you hear about. That all goes to the media for ads. So no wonder they don't want to talk about it. Why bite the hand that feeds them so well? 
Yet, that dark money and the conflicts of interest that it leads to, that remains a concern to elections at the federal level, the state level, and the local legislative uh, offices as well. But it's also concern at the judicial level, and perhaps even more so there, for reasons that I will discuss with my guest in the next segment. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by Bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As President Obama took the extraordinary step of endorsing a candidate for a state Supreme Court race this week, spending by outside groups on television ads in all such contests hit a record high nationwide, according to a new analysis by the Brennan Center for Justice. These developments, they write, underscore the growing importance of state courts in national politics and the expanding influence of secret money in targeting judges unfavorable to corporate agendas and other special interests. The millions of dollars spent, much of it without meaningful disclosure or accountability, raise serious questions of conflicts of interest and pose a troubling threat to core values of fairness and judicial integrity. And this is something we've been talking about on this show on and off for the past year or so. Uh, I'm, I'm troubled by these uh, judicial elections, and this is just one of the reasons why. Brennan Center goes on to say that outside groups have already spent a record $14 million on television ads in the 2015 and 2016 state Supreme Court election cycle, including nearly uh, $4 million this fall. That, according to an analysis of television ad contracts posted on the uh, FCC website, state disclosures and data for Cantor, from Cantor Media, the prior record for outside group spending on judicial races was $13.5 million back in 2011 and 2012, according to Brennan Center. State political parties, in contrast, have been relatively minor players this fall, with approximately $188,000 worth of television ad buys in Michigan and Washington, all from the uh, state Republican Party in that case. Recent experience suggests outside spending will continue to surge in the final weeks before Election Day. So what you've got here is these outside groups who are unaccountable, dark money in many of these cases, outspending even 
the political parties, not to mention the uh, the the judges who are up for elections. When outside groups pour money into judicial races, it puts our whole system at risk, says Alicia Bannon, senior counsel in the Brennan Center's democracy program. She says our democracy relies on judges to decide cases based on their understanding of the law and the facts in front of them and not out of fears about their next election. Yeah, that's a good point. Joining us now is Alicia Bannon. She serves as senior counsel in the Brennan Center's Democracy Program, where she leads the center's fair courts work. She has authored several nationally recognized reports and articles on judicial selection and access to justice. And she has clerked for Sonia Sotomayor back when she was on the uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Alicia Bannon, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, great to have you here and uh, really appreciate your report because this is something that has bothered the hell out of me for years. This idea that these uh, judges, these state Supreme Court justices, that they are even up for election at all. So let, let me start broadly here because I am troubled by this. Uh, the election of judges, period. Uh, much less state Supreme Court justices. How many states uh, generally select judges this way, put them up for a vote, making them open to the kind of political attacks that your analysis cites? 38 states use some kind of election to choose their Supreme Court justices. So Mm -hmm. that includes both contested elections where you have multiple candidates vying for a single seat, and then it also includes what are called retention elections, Mm -hmm. where a judge, a sitting judge, goes up on the ballot and the public basically votes yes or no whether or not to keep them on the bench. So, you know, all in, um, most states, the vast majority of states, use elections as part of their selection system. And, you know, around the country, we've been seeing these elections become higher cost, more politicized, and attracting a lot of special interest attention. Well, that's what I want to, yeah, setting aside even for the moment, if we set aside the dark money, the fact that we don't know where the Mm -hmm. money is coming from in many of these cases by, you know, from outside groups, uh, what is the problem as you see it, if any, with judges being held, uh, you know, being held accountable to the people in elections versus the type of appointment system that we see in some states and at the at the U.S. Supreme Court level, for example? I think it it goes to what a judge's job is. You know, in the end, a judge needs to be deciding cases based on their understanding of what the law requires and the facts that are in front of them, and not out of fears of what that's going to mean for, you know, fundraising in the next election cycle or what's going to be the subject of their next attack ad. And um, I think what what's troubling about um, as these elections have becoming are becoming more politicized is the kind of pressure that it puts on judges in in deciding cases and in, in doing their jobs. I think there's a real worry that if judges are too mixed up in the the rough and tumble of politics, that that's going to make it harder for them to step out of that and decide cases the cases that are in front of them under according to their understanding of the law. The alternative uh, to, to these elections then is, I guess, a, a system of appointments. Uh, it, it would Is that better than a system of democratic elections after all these appointments are made by, you know, partisan governors uh, who are, uh, you know, f- face that same system of, of money in politics? I mean, what what is the mm-hmm. better system that you'd like to see? Well, you know, there's no system is perfect, and there's advantages and disadvantages to all systems. I, I'd say that there there are some problems that actually 
states based across the board. So there's only three states, for example, that have life tenure for judges. So in every other state, in appointment systems and election systems, judges have to keep going before these political bodies, either a governor or the public at large, for reappointment or re-election. And I think those concerns about job security can be um, are, are really troubling in terms of having a, 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 set, a court that's, that's independent and kind of deciding decisions based on the law. So I, I think I would say, I, I don't think that it, it falls strictly on kind of election versus appointment grounds. I think there's other considerations as well, such as, you know, how are you structuring your system and, and to what extent are you insulating judges from these reselection pressures in particular. Um, but, you know, I would say elections right now, at least as they are functioning today, aren't working. You know, it, it, it's interesting because elections were actually a reform measure. You know, going back to the 19th century, everybody, uh, all judges were appointed either by the governor or by legislatures. And there was real concern that those judges were too closely aligned with the political branches, that they weren't being an adequate check on governors and legislatures, that they were letting them run wild. Mm -hmm. And so elections were an effort to basically further empower courts so that they would do a better job of protecting people's rights and pushing back against overreach by the political branches. But I think what we're seeing now as these elections are becoming so high cost and captured by special interests is that they're not serving that function anymore. And if anything, they're putting even more pressure on judges because of the, the money involved mm. and the conflicts of interest that get created. Indeed, your uh, your analysis finds, uh, I'll read a piece of this here, the Republican State Leadership Committee, which sounds like, oh, it's a, it's a party, it's the party. Uh, in fact, it's a corporate-funded group. Uh, their mission is to elect Republicans in down-ballot races. They're the largest outside spender in Supreme Court races this cycle. They've spent more than 620 thousand dollars on tv this fall in ohio alone uh and 220 225 thousand dollars to a uh a group called stop set em free sandifer.com up in uh, montana donated forty three thousand dollars in kind for polling and research and uh, so far to date the uh republican state leadership committee this corporate funded group has spent nearly $4.1 million on just six Supreme Court races in the 2015-2016 cycle in uh, in six states, Pennsylvania, Arkansas, West Virginia, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Montana. That's a lot of money, and uh, that's just from one group. You list some others as well uh, who are targeting, for example, uh, North Carolina, Families First, a progressive-leaning uh, political action committee has has been paying, uh, let's see, uh, they purchased ad contracts worth $670,000 in the North Carolina Supreme Court race this year. Um, does it, do, do we have any measure of, you know, what which parties are doing this more than the others? Is it Republicans doing mm -hmm. it more, Democrat-leaning groups, uh, uh, or are they about even at this point? Yep, um well, so, and one thing to say is just, you know, some of those numbers, it mm -hmm. might, you know, in a, in a presidential election year where people talk about, you know, billions of dollars going in, you know, it might not sound like much, but for, for a judicial election, it's a huge amount of money, yeah. especially because these are really low information races. Mm -hmm. so usually people don't know anything about these candidates. And so, you know, having, having the ability to buy television ads and give name recognition to a candidate can have a huge impact on who ends up winning one of these races. So, you know, this, the, the, this, this money is, you know, in the presidential election season, it might sound, not sound like much, 
but it has a huge impact to sway um, these elections and these courts. And in, in terms of who's been, been paying attention, you know, overwhelmingly in recent years, it's it's been um, kind of conservative and business interests that have been outspending the other side. Um, and that's especially the case with respect to national groups like the Republican State Leadership Committee, which have been targeting a bunch of states around the country. Now, it's interesting because this year there's some sense that that may be starting to change. So this North Carolina race mm-hmm. has attracted, um, you know, substantial spending um, on both sides, but including um, spending from um, from groups with links to um, national organizations on the left, as mm-hmm. well as the endorsement by President Obama. So, you know, maybe a signal that um, folks on the left are starting to pay more attention to these races, and, you know, we might start seeing more parity, at least in some states, as there are these battles over, over you know, whether, which direction, um, which partisan direction a court may be going. And and even if uh, yeah I mean you're right that that's a lot of money when you when you can get the the words uh, set him free Sandifer or whatever that uh, uh, website was called if you can paint a judge that way uh, people don't necessarily look much further they remember those uh, those slogans they don't need a lot of ads uh, comparatively to to make a choice I know that when I go uh, you know to vote uh, oftentimes I know nothing about the judges I don't vote in those races at all because I don't want to vote. The the wrong way. But right. s- setting aside whether one believes they should face pressure from Democratic elections, I suspect a lot of people think that's a good thing. That is a lot of money. Do we, the public, have any idea where it comes from uh, a lot of these uh, in a lot of these cases? And I guess more to the point, do the judges themselves, the justices or the judges who are being supported or even being opposed here, because that would pose a conflict of interest as well. They'd like to get back at those people who had opposed them. Do those justices know where any of this money actually comes from? Um, well, so increasingly, secret money is becoming a, a big part of these um, of these judicial races. So, um, you know, of the, of the outside spending that we've been documenting thus far, um, I think only, only three of 13 or 14 groups that have been spending so far have full disclosure of their donors. All the others are either um, themselves secret money groups that don't disclose their donors, or if you go one level down and see who their donors are, they're just a bunch of other PACs and social welfare groups. So it's like unpeeling an onion trying to figure out mm-hmm. who's, where is this money actually coming from. Um, you know, and I think, look, I mean, secret money is always concerning because it leaves the voters in the dark about who's trying to influence these elections and shape these courts. But you're exactly right that in the judicial context, there's also this second set of concerns about conflicts of interest and that there are conflicts that may be obscured because of um, the use of these dark money conduits. Um, you know, do, do the judges know? You know, we, we don't always know. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there may be cases where judges are, you know, appearing at events and, you know, talking to people that are, you know, committing to, to, to be spending one way or the other. So, you know, in some circumstances, they may be aware of, of you know, who's, who's behind some of the spending. In others, they might not be. I, I think one of the concerns, though, is that it, it kind of casts a shadow on all of these proceedings and raises these questions about, you know, are, are litigants and others involved in these cases you know, actually being active participants in in these elections. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in in the judicial context, 
appearances really matter. You know, it's it's not just if you look at kind of what the what the Constitution requires and what all the state ethics rules require for judges. You know, it's it's you know obviously judges need to step aside from cases when they're actually biased, but also when there's reasonable concerns of bias mm-hmm. as well. And so you know when you see all of this money and it's all it's all shrouded in secret, I think it does raise legitimate questions on the part of the public about who's behind it, what are their interests, and are, um, you know, what do judges know or not know about it, and, you know, what is it doing to my chance of getting a fair hearing mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm in court? Which is why you always hear the phrase, the appearance of conflict of interest. It's not necessarily the conflict of interest itself, it's just the appearance of it and the concern that people will have. You know, can a judge rule fairly, uh, you know, if the only reason they are sitting there is because they have been funded by X, Y and Z? I got a specific sort of uh, question on that in a second. But we've been talking on this program uh, about the the Republican uh, red map project, the redistricting uh, uh, project uh, to redraw congressional districts back in 2010 by putting a relatively small amount of money into very specific down-ballot races in state legislatures to take them over and thereby, uh, in t- back in 2010, the census year, be able to redraw the congressional maps. Um, it, is there any signs that this effort is akin to that uh, sort of GOP operative sort of working at the hyper-local level to maximize the, the party's political leverage across the uh, across the court systems as well. I mean, I think we saw evidence of that pretty clearly uh, to some extent in the Wisconsin Supreme Court fight, very contentious back in uh, in, in 2011 in the battle for a, a friendly majority for Governor Scott mm-hmm. Walker's pretty radical anti-union agenda back there in the state. They were clearly using that for political purposes. Uh, is there any evidence that this is what that this effort is is sort of a, a larger effort by the Republican Party or by the Democratic Party. Well, and in Wisconsin, there were these remarkable statements in these documents that were recently linked leaked to the Guardian, where um, you had you know Scott Walker's operatives basically saying you know we need to mm-hmm. we need to keep the court because mm-hmm. the court's what's going to protect us. You know, so I think they were very much viewing the Wisconsin Supreme Court in those terms. Um, you know, state Supreme Courts are really important, and they hear cases that have, um, you know, high stakes, among other things. They, they hear redistricting challenges. And, you know, that that's actually an issue that's become quite salient this year in North Carolina, mm-hmm. where, um, you know, this that's a state where um, right now it's a, it's a court that's that's controlled by a slim Republican majority, and that swing vote is is up for election this year. And um, you know, previously the the North Carolina Supreme Court upheld a redistricting um, a redistricting scheme that mm-hmm. was challenged as an as an illegal racial gerrymander. Subsequently, a federal court found that it was a racial gerrymander, and it's going up up to the um, U.S. Supreme Court right now. Um, you know, and that that redistricting decision itself has become a campaign issue. So the the judge who's up for election wrote the decision upholding that scheme, and mm-hmm. you know is being characterized now as basically having you know upheld a racist scheme to support his party. That's you know that, that there are ads that are going up right now mm-hmm. that are that are characterizing his decision in that way. And you know, I certainly think that one of the reasons why that race is getting so much attention, and in general, why races that are involved kind of closely divided courts tend to attract a lot of attention um, from parties and special interests 
is um, because because they're so powerful and because they can decide cases like those involving redistricting that can have a huge impact on the, the policy and legal environment in the state. And and this was the case where uh, uh, you mentioned uh, that uh, Barack Obama had come out and actually endorsed Superior Court Judge Michael Morgan in that race in North Carolina. How unusual is is that for a, a sitting president to come out and make an endorsement like that? And and does it suggest that, you know, even though in that case uh, it's not a big dark money ad buy, but uh, that that these court races are being recognized like pretty much every election in the nation at this point as, uh, you know, becoming far more politicized than than has been the tradition in this country for for many years. Yeah, you know, the, the president's endorsement was pretty remarkable. I mean, I certainly don't know of another example where uh, a United States president has weighed in on a state judicial race. And I think I think you're exactly right that I, it shows just how politically charged many of these races are becoming and, and what the stakes are, you know. And, and I, I mean, I think the, the concern is that this can lead to essentially an arms race where you're just going to see a lot of money pouring in on all sides, um, you know, a lot more attention, you know, they become a lot more politically charged. And the problem is that then you still have judges needing to decide these cases, you know, and and what do you do when you're hearing a case that's, you know, on a hot button issue and, you know, you know that it's going to be grist for, you know, if you you rule one way, you know it's going to be grist Mm -hmm. for an attack ad or you know that it's going to bring, you know, the a few billionaires in your state to pour some money in to challenge you the next time that you're um, you're you're up for election. You know, that that puts pressure on judges in a way that I think can be really harmful to the integrity of our system. And you know, the thing with courts is, you know, courts courts don't have armies, right? Courts don't have police officers. They don't have a way to enforce their decisions except the legitimacy that they have in the public's eye. And so if if we start if courts start being seen as just another political actor, no different than any other elected official, then they start to lose that legitimacy, and that really undermines the the core of what they are. Mm. So I, I do think it's a really troubling development, you know, and not not that you can never criticize a court decision or never express an opinion on a Supreme Court race, but I think the broader structural questions of you know, how is how judicial selection is operating now and how elections are operating now, is that really consistent with, um, you know, how we want our judicial system to operate is, is a really important question. And I think one that states have not been sufficiently engaging with is they're looking at how their systems are working. I remember when the uh, the Iowa, I think it was Iowa Supreme Court, uh, some years ago, the justices uh, had essentially agreed that a ban on marriage equality in the state was unconstitutional uh, mm-hmm. under the state constitution. They were then targeted by right-wing groups very specifically for removal. I think that it was successful. I think they got them off the court. Um, yeah, three justices lost yeah. their seats. And and I don't think it was a matter of them disagreeing with the decision on a legal basis. They just didn't like the decision. I think that they were right uh, as far as constitutionally goes, but they just didn't like it. So that said, uh, just to, I guess, be the devil's advocate here, what's, what's to say that's not the right kind of use for judicial elections? In other words, hold justices accountable to the people. Uh, why not? Well, I think it goes to what, what you mean by accountable. You know, there's, there's different ways that you can hold judges accountable. You know, if they're making legal mistakes, 
Mm-hmm. That's why we have appeals, and you know things can go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court if if a state high court um, makes a mistake on a legal matter. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you have judges that are acting unethically or don't have you know the appropriate temperament, you know they're they're not they're not acting as they should. There's disciplinary processes that um, you know are in place or should be in place to to address those kinds of concerns. So I, I think the question is whether or not we want to put um, you, you know. It, whether whether we think it's important to have you know the public just weighing in on on their kind of opinions on the wisdom of particular you know judicial decisions and you know I think there's there is a concern there because you know judges are not supposed to just go with what the majority prefers you know there's a long history going back to you know pushing back against segregation and marriage equality I mean there's a whole set of issues where what's what's popular might not be what's constitutional. And, you know, judges sometimes yeah. have to have to push back against what the majority prefers because our constitutions protect individual rights, um, even against majority preferences. And so I do think there's a real tension if what you mean by accountability is, um, you know, sort of empowering um, majority will mm-hmm. when, you know, a judge's job is not just to go with what the majority wants. It's to go with what the law is, the state constitution is, whether it's a good law or a, or a good constitution, I guess. Uh, we've got just a, a minute or two left here with uh, Alicia Bannon of the Brennan Center for Justice. Uh, Alicia, we, we had mentioned uh, Wisconsin and uh, this David Prosser. I, uh, I want to ask something specific about that. The, that In that Wisconsin Supreme Court election, uh, for for Prosser, uh, mm-hmm. tied to Scott Walker at the time. Uh, I believe Prosser has since retired. But in that case, uh, outside groups had far outspent the money that the candidate himself, uh, Prosser and and Kloppenberg, who he was running against, Joanne Kloppenberg, um, that they were able. The, the outside groups had outspent the campaigns themselves. And then this state investigation into collusion between Governor Scott Walker and the groups that had funded both his recall election in 2012 and the Prosser Supreme Court election a few months earlier, that came before that investigation came before the Supreme Court itself. But Prosser uh, and another one of the justices whose, whose name is escaping me at the moment, um, but was also funded by those same groups. Mm-hmm. They refused to recuse yes. themselves from the ruling that ended up killing that investigation into the groups that they themselves had been funded by. Is, right. is that an unusual case or is, is that exactly the type <laughs> of problem uh, that, that we're seeing with this outside funding of judicial elections? Right, and talk about appearances, right? Yeah. That, that doesn't look very good. No. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> it's, it's a huge issue. And, and, I mean, one of the problems that states, the states that use judicial elections have is that their rules around when judges should be stepping aside from cases mm-hmm. have not kept up with the reality of the importance, both how much money is going into these races and particularly how important these outside groups have become. Now, Wisconsin is an extreme case in that they actually passed a rule saying that um, the mere spending um, on by an outside group in in your judicial in a judicial election on its own could not be a basis to step aside from a case, which um. I think is 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 remarkable and completely at odds with 
both what the Supreme Court has said about, you know, outside spending and, mm-hmm. and when it can create an appearance of bias or reality of bias. It's mind-blowing, well in truth. What, what happened what in Wisconsin... What the public thinks as well. Yeah, uh, what happened in Wisconsin, what is con- continuing to happen in Wisconsin, uh, continues to blow me away. We've talked about it a lot on this show. It's, it's just remarkable. And you're right, it is sort of uh, in contrast with the U.S. Supreme Court itself. What, how much... Does this is this trend related to the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision in 2012, opening up the the use of this kind of dark money, uh, undisclosed money, or is it a trend that's been around longer than that? Well, you know, we've been we've seen money in these races for many years, but the growing role of outside groups does correspond with um, Citizens United and how that's kind of opened up this whole new way of spending in these races. So, you know, starting, so Citizens United was in 2010, starting in the next election cycle, 2011 to 2012, we saw a real uptick in spending by outside groups, and that's only gone up higher. And as you said, this year, we're already, we've already broken the record, and there's still, you know, more than a week to go before Election Day, which is pretty remarkable. Mm. So, um, you know, certainly it's corresponded in that way. And, you know, I think why some of it is you know, there's there's now um, you know super PACs, other groups that didn't used to be allowed to spend in this way are now able to, and it's also led to this growing prominence of these dark money groups, groups that don't need to disclose their their donors that are now seeking to weigh in. I also think there's been just a cultural shift. You know, some of these states didn't have particularly strong campaign finance laws to begin with, mm-hmm. but I think post Citizens United, it's really normalized mm. um, spending by outside groups mm. and has has. Uh, you know, I think we've been seeing that on the federal side as well as in state races that, you know, it's it's also just shifted the culture around that. And I think people and groups feel more comfortable just weighing in in this way, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, is, is a really troubling development. Um, you know, I think especially in judicial races because of the conflicts of interest it can create. Second to last question in that case, uh, what, if anything, is the solution to what is a seemingly a growing problem and only going to get worse? Is there a solution? Uh, well, yes, I think, I mean, first off, I think states need to, to take a close look at their selection systems writ large. You know, I think that, I mean, we were talking a little earlier about these reselection pressures. You know, among other things, I think it's, you know, the, the, the fact that so many judges are having, having to go, you know, up for re-election and have their decisions scrutinized and, you know, subject to misleading attack ads and the like is, is a really troubling development mm. and something that, you know, I think really warrants states looking more closely at how they're structuring their selection systems to begin with. Um, you know, I mean, we also need measures like stronger recusal rules, so judges are not hearing cases involving major campaign spenders, measures like public financing, so that, you know, at the very least, the judges themselves don't need to fundraise from the very interests that are appearing before them. You know, if you've got a good public financing system, mm-hmm. then at least a judge can run a competitive race without needing to do that kind of fundraising from um, from interests, many of which are regularly participating in court. I think public funding of elections is the solution to a lot of the problems we're facing in this country yeah. right now, to be frank. All right, uh, last question. Totally separate issue here, uh, Alicia, but I know you, you clerked for... Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, when she was an appellate judge on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, I think she's so far proved to be a fantastic justice, and I will feel much better knowing that uh, she is there uh, after Ruth Bader Ginsburg eventually leaves the court if 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg ever actually leaves the court. Uh, <laughs> can, can, can you offer a thought as a, as a clerk for uh, Sotomayor, based on your experiences with her? Uh, th- th- what should folks know about her that, that maybe we do not know already? I mean, she she's a remarkable person. She is, you know, one of the smartest people I've ever met, but she is also just a really kind person. You know, you would we would sit around in chambers, and she would... You know, she'd know everything about, you know, your life and your family and, you know, your latest diet. And, you know, we were just, you know, she was such a, a warm person and such a, a caring mentor. So I, I think the country is really lucky to have her have her on the bench. And like I said, she's one of the, the most brilliant people I've I've ever met. And I've I've loved reading, you know, reading her opinions mm-hmm. now that she's on the Supreme Court and, you know, seeing seeing her her voice in, in the mix, I think, is, is just an incredible thing for the country. Thank you for that reassuring opinion. I'll I'll, I'll take uh, such assurance uh, these days anywhere I can find it. Alicia Bannon, uh, she's <laughs> the uh, senior counsel in the Brennan Center's Democracy Program. Uh, check out the. Uh, their uh, remarkable analysis. We didn't even get into some of the specifics of how this affects some of these cases down in Louisiana, where there's all of these cases, uh, you know, against the oil companies. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the oil companies, in fact, are putting in all of this money into a Supreme Court justice race down there. It's amazing. Uh, the report is uh, outside groups set TV spending record in judicial races as Obama endorses a North Carolina judge. You can find that at BrennanCenter.org. You can find them on the Twitters at Brennan Center. And you can find Alicia Bannon on the Twitters as well at Alicia underscore Bannon. Thanks so much for your work, Karen, for joining us today, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with more broadcast in our remaining minutes here. How the hell did the Bundy brothers get off the hook up in Oregon? We'll talk about that right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Okay. I think they were hoping for a revolution up in Oregon, those Bundy brothers, but they didn't get one. But they did get off scot-free, apparently, at least for now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The uh, kind of amazing, this uh, month-long trial against Eamon and, uh, is that how you say it? Eamon? Eamon Bundy? I think it's, I think it's Eamon. Eamon. Eamon and Ryan Bundy and five of their followers, they were charged in the armed takeover of a federally owned Oregon wildlife sanctuary back in January of this year. Wow, it seems longer ago. <laughs> uh, they were acquitted on Thursday of federal conspiracy and weapon charges. Which is kind of amazing. This is after a month-long trial. Uh, the defendants never denied they had occupied and held the Malheur National Wildlife Refugee uh, uh, Refuge headquarters for nearly six weeks. They took over this thing, demanding that the federal government surrender 188,000 acres of property to local control. 
But their lawyers argued that the prosecutors did not prove that the group had engaged in an an illegal conspiracy that kept federal workers, employees of the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Bureau of Land Management from doing their jobs. And somehow the jury bought that, believed that. And these guys are off the hook. They took over this federal property with Guns, automatic weapons, and gut, and held it for six weeks, and now they're off the hook. Yeah, really? it's it's pretty wild. Uh, Governor Kate Brown she put a statement on Twitter saying she was disappointed in the verdict. A lot of people are are just gobsmacked by this. Um, it was apparently an all white jury, but you know Oregon is primarily white. Mm-hmm. Taken from uh, the jurors were taken from all over the state. Um, and there is a question. Some uh, one one observer I said I, I read said that you know a conspiracy charge is hard to prove a lot of times. So that might be something to do with that. Uh, and others had, had brought up the idea of jury nullification. You gave a great explanation of what that is. Well, the idea that when a jury f- feels for whatever reason that the law is unfair or unjust and despite the facts of the case, they decide to to, you know, find against that for whatever reasons they may have. But I, I'll tell you, I had a, had a group of <laughs> armed Muslims or even African-Americans overtaken a federal facility and held it for six weeks, I don't think they would have gotten out of it alive. Yes. And much less been found not guilty in a, in a trial. And a lot of folks were also making comparisons to on the same day, you know, the armed uh, yes. conflict that took place in North, in Dakota, North Dakota over Standing Rock. You know, Rolling Stone writer Jesse Burney tweeted, you know, in case you're wondering what white privilege looks like, it's taking over a federal building with guns and getting off scot-free, a jarring contrast to the intimidation of native people at Standing Rock who are unarmed and demonstrating for a legitimate cause. And not only that, they're on private land. I mean, there's nothing going on there as far they're on public land where they are and they've already been roughed up there as well but you know they're, they're they haven't taken over a federal facility with guns and but they're native americans so call out the pepper spray and the uh, and lrads and the mraps and the state of emergency these guys uh now one of them was shot I should and That's killed uh, during the uh, standoff while he was trying to run from uh, officials. Well, and also it looked but, like he was drawing his firearms. So. Exactly, but uh, the fact that these guys got off the hook, I cannot imagine that happening to anyone who was non-white. Anyway, these guys also, by the way, they're not completely off the hook. They still stand to face charges, I think, in in Nevada for, yes. uh, uh, in for their response to the federal officials. Uh, Back in 2014, the standoff at the Bundy Ranch. With their father, also a scofflaw. Their father, the scofflaw rancher, Cliven Bundy, uh, and his refusal to pay up millions of dollars that he owes in federal grazing privileges. So good. Uh, they'll face charges on that. Hope they get them this time. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thank you very much, Des. Uh, to my guest today, Alicia Bannon of NYU Brennan Center's Democracy Program. And to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. Uh, as uh, is the support uh, of those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do five days a week over your public airwaves. We could not do it without your help. So thank you very much for that. Uh, If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. Leave a comment, say hello there if you like. Uh, Do the same if you prefer over at iTunes or any other podcast site where the Bradcast is held. And uh, we'd love to hear from you as well on the Facebooks and the Twitters. Get the word to help share the broadcast with 
everyone you know. On the uh, on the Facebooks and the Twitters, we are simply the Brad Blog. If you prefer, you can drop me email. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com. That's it. Angie Coiro will be in for us on the next thrilling Bradcast. We'll be back thereafter. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 